0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. I'm your host, Jim Ambosky. I'm really excited to bring you part one of my conversation with Mary Thompson, the library's research historian and author of the new book, The Only Unavoidable Subject of Regret, George Washington's Slavery and the Enslaved Community at Mount Vernon. In today's episode, Mary and I discuss the origins of her project, how interpretations of slavery at Mount Vernon have changed over time, and Washington's early days as a slave owner. Next week, we'll bring you part two of this conversation in which Mary and I explore the enslaved community in detail and Washington's decision to free some of his slaves in his will. And if you'd like to purchase a copy of Mary's book, we'll post a link on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Well, Mary Thompson, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we're really excited to have you here to talk about your most recent book, the Only Unavoidable Subject of Regret, George Washington, Slavery, and the Enslaved Community at Mount Vernon. And just for folks who might want to purchase a copy, we'll have a link uh, to our bookshop at the, on our podcast page and with details at the end. Uh, but I thought we might start actually by talking about a man we both knew, and we both had the privilege to take a class from, uh, from our uh, graduate school days, and that's Joe Miller, uh, who was a professor of history at the University of Virginia, one of the uh, foremost historians of Africa and African slavery uh, in the last 30 years, I'd say. And, and unfortunately, he passed away a couple of months ago. And in your introduction to your book, you talk uh, quite movingly about Joe and what it was like to be in his classroom. And I wonder if you'd care to share some thoughts about uh, your memories of him and, and how he has influenced your work.
1: I took um, a class called Slave Systems with him uh, when I was getting my master's degree at UVA, and it was the best class I've ever had anywhere, anytime. <laughs> um, we were looking at slavery in many, many cultures over thousands of years, uh, trying to sort of get to the essence of the, what slavery was
0: mm-hmm.
1: and still is, um, unfortunately. Um Mr. Miller was fantastic. Um, we spent the first three days just talking about what's a slave. He had no notes. We were just <laughs> yeah. winging it and talking, <laughs> and he could always come back with, "Yes, but in such and such a culture, it, this was true." Mm-hmm. Darn, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay.
1: He was he was amazing, and. He and his wife had our entire class over for an African dinner one night, oh wow, and told us stories about living in Africa with the kids. And um, they were so welcoming and nice, and he was always very caring about what was going on with his students, and which I found was not necessarily the case with the rest of the department. and just a wonderful person, and I was thrilled when they made him. I think it was Dean of Students or something, because that just mm-hmm. seemed like, and he was in that position for several decades, I think. And it was a perfect fit for him, and I was just really sad when I found out that, that he died
0: recently. Yeah. yeah, he did have that way with students, I think. I, you know, I, he, I t- had him for an Atlantic History course, and, or no, I'm sorry, world history course, but I did a field in Atlantic history with him. Uh, and he was always, he was extremely tough, but extremely fair. And I think, as you rightly say, he cared deeply about his students. Um, and, I, and I think you see that the tributes that have come out recently to him. And I, one of the things I wanted to ask you is if he, if he did the same thing when you took him that he did for us, which is when he would edit your paper and then you, you know, and he would always come back with copious edits. And then you resubmitted a new draft. Did he back then have the tendency to edit his own edits? <laughs> No, I don't remember that.
1: <laughs> but that's wonderful. Yeah. We
0: we always, you know, nowadays we submit things and track changes on Microsoft Word, and you you would see his thought process play out when he started to argue with himself in the margins of our own papers. Um, and it was it was very endearing uh, to those of us uh, who took him uh, in the last few years. But um, yeah, Joe was a great guy, and I was lucky to take a, a course with him and. and uh, and uh, you were as well and so I, I guess from there i'd like to ask you know what are the what are the origins of this book uh, and how uh, how did learning about slave systems in graduate school evolve into a research question that ultimately helped you flesh out the details not only of washington as a slave owner but uh, equally important the enslaved community here at mount vernon
1: well i came to Mount Vernon to work in the spring of 1980. Um, I was just finishing up at UVA and uh, needed a job that paid, and because um, <laughs> I've been working as a volunteer mm-hmm. at another museum. And they were hiring uh, interpreters for the, the busy summer season. Mm-hmm. And so, well, it paid better than being a volunteer, so, um, <laughs> but not much. And <laughs> and I went, um, I, you know, I started doing, doing that. And in grad school, you know, I didn't just take, you know, Mr. Miller's mm-hmm. course. I, I took... Um, Courses in both um, your early modern Europe and, and colonial America, because I figured you couldn't understand what was going on in America if you didn't know what was going on where the people were coming from. Right. So um, it's kind of Atlantic history hadn't been invented yet. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, um, so a lot of the readings that we had to do for. For my colonial classes, had to do with slavery and the development of slavery mm-hmm. in in America, or in North America, and so I was
0: drawn to that question at, a, at an early point in your career.
1: Very, and I got here and nobody was talking about slavery um, <laughs> on the mansion tours, on the you mm-hmm. know in the outbuildings, the signs didn't even mention.
0: Slavery usually, and, um, and that we period, talked about servants. <laughs> that was, was going to be my question: Is that that's how they were described back in that period? If they were, if they were described t- at all, talked about at all. Mm-hmm.
1: And so I was kind of shocked, and um, but there wasn't anything I could do about it. Um, and five months after I started in interpretation, I moved, moved to the curate curator's office and was helping her with special projects and stuff. And so she knew, she came to know that this was an issue I was very interested in and concerned about. Um, And so a few years later, she let me start adding material to the signs about the slaves who worked in the various buildings, in the outbuildings. And we started trying to make it look like the people who lived in the quarters were actually people and <laughs> um,
0: to put a face on them so right. to speak. Yeah.
1: And so that's sort of how that began by the now in 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 the mid nineteen eighties Um, I became the registrar in the curator's office, Mm -hmm. which means that I was cataloging new things as they came into the collection. And I was mostly dealing with, I was dealing with a lot of genealogy questions because we were studying the provenance of new things that were coming in. Mm -hmm. Um, Provenance is one of those curatorial words that means um, the history (laughs) of of those pieces. The object. Mm -hmm. And the ownership um, line. And um, after a few years of doing that, which also involved things like, you know, working with insurance companies and making sure that all the values were the same and doing tons and tons of inventories, I kind of felt like I was, like, <laughs> um, my brain for historical stuff was dying. <laughs> and um, and so my boss arranged for all of us in the department to have one day a week to to pick a a research topic Mm -hmm. and have one day a week to work on that so you were free of other duties. And so my first topic was foodways, which uh, was one of the topics that that people most asked about. And we would get inquiries Mm -hmm. about what were the Washingtons Mm -hmm. eating. And I want to... I want to do a dinner like George Washington would have had. You know, mm-hmm. usually when people find out the details of 18th century dinners, they really don't want yeah. to do. But
0: <laughs> retreats. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but you'd help them and and stuff and try to find recipes and and things. And um, so I, I started working on Foodways, which can get you into all kinds of aspects of of life here at Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. And so. I was, you know, copying down anything. Like, so the Washingtons are buying honey and chickens and eggs and things from their sometimes watermelons and other kinds of vegetables and fruits um, from their slaves sometimes.
0: So, so there's a little there's a, a little home economy going on where they're mm-hmm. they're purchasing from their own enslaved people then
1: right and that hap- that was not unusual mm-hmm. um, there are really great records from Monticello showing the similar similar sorts of uh, purchases from slaves um, so th- th- slaves and slavery were interspersed throughout the the foodways research and after a few years my boss went to a conference at at Monticello on interpreting slavery at historic sites Mm -hmm. and came back really fired up about us needing to do that. And she said, could you switch, leave off food waste Mm -hmm. for a while and go and and work on slavery? And I said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was working on that for several years. um, And... We got to uh, 1992, 93, and we had gotten a grant from the Kellogg Foundation to rebuild the 16-sided barn, Mm -hmm. and in the summer of 1993, we were going to have a whole slew of college-age interns coming in to actually build the barn, Mm -hmm. and... They were going to be doing a lot of work that the enslaved people here would have done. And so they needed to know more about their lives. Precisely. And so they asked me to write up um, for essays about various aspects mm-hmm. of of life. And so I did that. And we the next year we worked on development of a tour on slave life at Mount Vernon and then the following year we debuted that for the public so 1995. Um, Now in the meantime early in the early 80s we had uh, a professor from Washington State University who came to do research on slavery here at Mount Vernon. He was well along he'd written at least one paper on it and So we thought, okay, someone's handling,
0: you know, Someone's doing something, yeah.
1: And um, he ended up having, I think, family issues and Mm -hmm. some medical issues and um, never finished. And later in the 80s and early 90s, we had um, another professor who was working on Mm -hmm. slavery here at Mount Vernon. And her book was never done. But we kept saying to people, "Yeah, I know, we, you, know you you want to know more about right. this, but th- there are books in the works. Something's coming down, down. the pike. Yeah, and, but they didn't. And then uh, two two people, um, Henry Winsack and Fritz Hirschfeld, right. wrote books about slavery at Mount Vernon, which for various reasons I was kind of disappointed with. Mm-hmm. So... When I did the four essays for the interns, um, as with anything I do, it's never completely finished. And so I just kept, as I would find material, I would add it mm-hmm. in there, and I thought, oh, well, maybe we could use something on Washington as a slave owner. You know, so then I started another one. And um, it it gradually, gradually got to the point where
0: it, it, it was becoming a book. It's becoming something more. Mm-hmm. So, it, this has been a uh, kind of a <laughs> slow moving train that's really gained momentum, particularly in the last, I guess, 10 years. Would that be fair to say? And, then, mm-hmm. and now we're at the station, uh, it seems like. Um, you, you mentioned that when you really, the genesis of this question began decades ago, and then at that moment, if slavery was discussed at all, uh, they were referred to as servants, and and you've just sort of spoken about the ways that the interpretation has evolved over time, and and the the Monticello conference was kind of a a pivot, a pivotal moment and a and, a, and a moment to pivot to um, something that needed to be talked about, and that people at other historic sites were talking about. Um, can you describe how uh, you know since that moment, and since you began writing those essays? Mount Vernon has taken a more proactive role in interpreting the life of the enslaved here?
1: It started off slowly with new signage that mentioned slaves, Mm -hmm. and sometimes even by name, and moved on to adding material to the the souvenir handbook that we gave out, or that we sell, and... um, So so slowly getting into that, and Mm -hmm. by 95, we had a tour for for people who were interested in the topic and has grown from there to um, having first-person character interpreters. Um, These are um, historic interpreters who actually have a character in mind, Mm -hmm. and they try as much as possible to stay in character and to stay in the 18th century when they're talking to visitors. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's gone on. We've had conferences here about slavery, some special events. Um, Since the 90s, we've had an annual program with a local group known as Black Women United for Action Mm -hmm. to commemorate the anniversary of the memorial at the slave burial ground. Oh, cool. Which went up, I believe, in 1983, um, after a a group of local citizens found out that there was a burial ground here. I had been here for three years and didn't know. so it, it wasn't just that we weren't telling visitors, staff didn't know staff either. Staff didn't know. <laughs> and, um, so in
0: some ways, it's, been, it's also been a community effort
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And the, with the surrounding community and various partners and stakeholders and whatnot. Um, when, uh, switching into the book itself, um, you know, the central figure is, is George and Martha and the enslaved community. When did George Washington first become a slaveholder?
1: Uh, that happened when his father died in 1743, when Washington was 11 years old. And in his will, Augustine Washington left George, um, who was his third surviving son, 10 10 slaves. Mm -hmm. And um, he he doesn't start, he doesn't actually take possession until he's about 18. But from, from the time he's 11 years old, he's a
0: slave owner. He's a de facto slaveholder, and then mm-hmm. you know, in, in a very real sense that when he reaches his adulthood, what, what was the state of play for Virginia slavery when Washington was a child and as, and as he ultimately came into sort of full legal possession of, of his enslaved people?
1: By the time Washington was born um, and, and in his childhood growing up, it, slavery um, had become institutionalized mm-hmm. in Virginia. Um, we're now celebrating the 400th anniversary of, you know, when the first um, Africans came to Mount, came to Virginia in 1619. Right. And, uh, well, George Washington was born in 1732, mm-hmm. and the institution of slavery becomes institutional. It, the, the Virginia House of Burgesses is dealing with slavery in the 1660s and 1670s, sort of building the legal framework for the institution of slavery in this colony.
0: And, and that part of that, if I remember rightly, it's part of the reason they do so is because the enslaved population has become so significant that now they'd have to le- figure out ways to codify it and then determine who is and who is not a slave. Right. Um, and if I remember correctly, indentured servitude is still the primary
1: mm-hmm.
0: labor form in this period, but the the acts you described in the 1660s are indicative of the fact that the House of Burgesses realizes they've got to figure out, you know, how to manage an enslaved population going forward.
1: Right. Um, so in the... <coughs> 17th century, it looks like about 3,000 um, Africans were brought into Virginia. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to between 1700 and the Revolution, over 115,000 people were being brought in. Wow. So we're not talking about the numbers that, you know, are in South coming going to South America or to the Caribbean, Carolinas, but uh, in the local Alexandria area when. George Washington takes possession of Mount Vernon and first starts farming here in the 1750s. Um, the pop, the enslaved population is about in, in this area is about 28 percent of the total. Wow. Um, by the time you get to the American Revolution, it's about 40 percent. So slavery is a. It, he's he's here at Mount Vernon, and in his lifetime is living through
0: the largest
1: um, increase. increase in sla- enslaved people in, in Virginia.
0: And, and many of the slaves he eventually acqu- acquires comes from his marriage to Martha Washington, uh, from uh, her marriage uh, to Daniel Custis. What And, and if I remember rightly, there, there's a two-year... So They marry in 1759, is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do we know about Martha as a slave master? We know, uh,
1: of course, because she, she left fewer um, paper records, we know less than mm-hmm. we do about George's actions and his development as a slave owner. Um, she, uh, she... the The memories of her and the, the reminiscences of her by former slaves are always have always been very good. Mm-hmm. Um, George Washington has sort of a mixed, um, mixed reputation record. among the the slaves, but th- these um, o- older people were also talking to Mar- Martha's grandchildren. Right. So <laughs> we
0: have to take that into, <laughs> into account. Into account.
1: Certainly. But they they talk about her kindness and um, in, in, in her the rest other parts of her life she's a very caring um, very caring kind of person who is always doing favors for people mm-hmm. and so you get the impression that she's doing the same thing with the people who are enslaved now she can be very tough. She's like George Washington. She expects things to be done mm-hmm. and done right. She um, has some very harsh things to say about um, African American people um,
0: in in what sense
1: The nature of of black people. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so she's very much in keeping with this eighteenth century mindset that there are racial hierarchies mm-hmm. and, and you know one color denotes or connotes certain intellectual and social capabilities that that one another color does not
1: right she's also um, very hierarchical mm-hmm. as was the
0: society right.
1: about you know hired and indentured people as well so um, she she does bring that
0: <laughs> bring that to the <laughs> to table the ta- as mm-hmm. well when you mentioned that George, has a more mixed reputation and in your book you you say one of the most frequent questions you get is well, was George Washington a good master and it seems like the, it's not not the, the right question. The right question would be what kind of master was Washington and then how did that evolve over time? Um, so can you give us a sense of of how George thought of himself as a slave master and his conduct towards his Enslaved people in the years before the Revolution?
1: We know less about that period um, because Washington is here mm-hmm. at Mount Vernon and.
0: He's not writing letters to. He's right. not in Philadelphia writing letters back home. Mm-hmm. Right. are
1: getting letters we're getting from. Getting letters. Back home and weekly reports mm-hmm. and things like that. But prior to the Revolution, he seems to have been just a a fairly typical large plantation owner in his uh, treatment of the slaves Mm -hmm. who were here, his interactions with them. He's quite stern. Um, But you see him doing favors for people as well. Mm -hmm. So some of the slaves... That in the 1760s came to him and asked if they could borrow the fishing scenes uh-huh. so that they could fish for themselves, and and he let them borrow them, and um, he's he's actively buying people uh, in the period between his marriage in 1759 and um, the beginning of the revolution, so. Lots of new people are coming to Mount Vernon at the time. He's also busy in local politics and with the, the local church. Um, so he's got lots of irons in the fire, mm-hmm. and he's, um,
0: he's, he's... He's still actively acquiring slaves, at, you know, still, still seeking out social advancement and economic mm-hmm. advancement. Uh, through politics and religion and whatnot. And certainly, when you're adding human capital uh, to your portfolio, that increases your stature amongst your fellow planters, and and also um, the potential for greater economic profit, given the economy in the period.
1: Mm -hmm. He's also, by the end of the 1760s, he's starting to change his focus from tobacco to wheat and other grains. Um, as the staple crops, mm-hmm.
0: and, and why is that?
1: That's because he's he's seeing a lot of problems with tobacco as a as a staple. Um,
0: In terms of soil exhaustion and, and things the, well, like that. Well, there's that.
1: But you, if if you're not careful, you also get that with some of the grains. Right. As, as long as you're monocropping, mm-hmm. and um, so what he. Uh, so he, he's worried about you know depletion of the soil, but he's also worried about things like um, the economic system that they have with merchants in England, where um, they're kind of, <coughs> so, so to speak, over the barrel. Um, <laughs> 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 um, you, the the prices and stuff are set by the factors in England. Mm-hmm. Um, the American colonists are buying. Um, Things for their homes, clothing, just pretty much everything they need, because mm-hmm. there isn't much industry here in the U.S. and are they colonies? Um, <laughs> and he's um, he feels that. The, well, w- wonderful letters where he's complaining about what he gets sent, you know, what he ordered and what he, actually, what he got actually got, and at the price that he had to pay for it, and he just feels like the whole system is set up, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, it, to be very good for the British merchants mm-hmm. and not so much for the colonial farmers, and so. Um,
0: it's like when you're you think you're shopping on Amazon. And you see the image of what you're buying, and then you get it, and it's something completely different. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They didn't have two-day shipping back in that period. So. No,
1: it was more like six months—four yes. to six months. So, <laughs> oh. um, you know, the, so he's always ordering like clothing for the kids, mm-hmm. for to fit a child who's like a year older than what they yeah, exactly. are when he it's orders the things. Late,
0: yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of problems with the mercantile system that's in place, mm-hmm. and tobacco is not a great crop. And he's seeing, you know, possibilities for markets for grain in the cities along the coast of the United wow. States, in the West Indies where they can't really grow grains. Mm-hmm. And um, so so there's other markets that get you out of that tobacco economic right. system.
0: Right, he's looking to branch out and, and expand to other markets.
1: So all that's going on, um, too. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> he was a very busy man. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. Our producer and sound engineer is Anthony King. Our theme music, entitled Mount Vernon, was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.